Hi, welcome back to Just Ask the Question. I am your host, Brian Karam, and with us today is an old friend, and uh, full disclosure, uh, uh, my attorney on occasion, <laughs> Mark Zaid, who's made a name for himself uh, with uh, FOIA and a bunch of, and you had two, right? Two uh, of your clients were on the January, uh, testified in the January 6th commission. Is that right, Mark? That's right. Always good to see you and hear you, Brian. Good to see you uh, and the, hear you too, even if it's not trivia night. Yes, there were two uh, Capitol Police officers who testified, two Metropolitan Police officers at that first hearing of the committee back at the end of July, July 27th, I think it was. Uh, and both of the Capitol Police officers one sergeant one officer are clients of mine we'll have more on that so stick around we'll do our short break pay the bills and we'll be right back attention jatq listeners this is a friendly reminder that our weekly newsletter will be moving to the online newsletter database called substack our entire back catalog of weekly updates will be available there as well as Brian's articles from Playboy and Bulwark. You can check all of that out at justaskthequestion.substack.com. That's justaskthequestion.substack.com. Hi, welcome back. It's Just Ask the Question. With us is Attorney Mark Zaid. Mark, I guess let's start out talking about the January 6th committee. You had two clients that testified. What were your thoughts when you saw them testifying that day? And and let's clear up who Harry was one of them, but tell us who your two clients were. Sure. Uh, Officer Harry Dunn, who is probably most familiar to everyone. Uh, Michael Fanone is the Metropolitan Police Officer, who probably people are most familiar with. The two of them, frankly, have been the most prominent of the officers who were involved in January 6th, who have been doing media interviews. And I came into the case, oh, only about a month or so after January 6th to advise Officer Dunn, uh, predominantly just to make sure he didn't do anything wrong, but to make sure he didn't do anything wrong, actually, to ensure that he could properly, lawfully speak out to the media as well as to Congress about what he experienced and witnessed on January 6th, but not suffer any adverse employment consequences with the Capitol Police. Because, you know, look, you work for the federal government, you can't just go out and talk to the media. So we did everything by the book. Uh, he's, he has uh, followed the, pr- the process, the procedures, uh, the con- all sorts of arrangements that I negotiated with the department uh, just to make sure that everything would be okay. Uh, After a few months of that, Sergeant Aquilino Ganell decided he wanted to also speak out, a colleague of Harry's. And so I did the same arrangements with Sergeant Ganell. 
And the, the January 6th committee obviously got stood up. It wasn't what everybody, majority, who, who knows, I guess, depending on where you are in the country, at least here in DC, it wasn't what the majority of us wanted, which was a bipartisan commission uh, jointly appointed by the House and the Senate that did not come to pass because of the Senate. So the House, of course, created its own, what was to be a bipartisan select committee, but then the Republicans pulled out. So uh, Pelosi, to her credit, the Speaker of the House appointed two Republicans, uh, though obviously that's uh, against the wishes of Congressman McCarthy, the minority leader. And the first hearing that they had was properly to hear encounters of what occurred that day. You know, hear from the officers themselves who saved the members' lives. Well, let's, let's, you, a lot to unpack there. Let's start with, it wasn't. Are you are you happy with where it's going? This uh, committee is going. Do you feel comfortable that they're going to accomplish anything, even though it isn't what they wanted to begin with, or what anyone wanted to begin with? So now that that's kind of the loaded question uh, because there's so much in that. Now, look for the first hearing. It it was ex I think it went exactly the way it should. Hear the stories of the officers. They were so moving. They were so compelling. Uh, you know, obviously, well, we, what everyone wants to know is, is there going to be prosecution for those who are behind it? Well, and that's a good question, because one of the things, one of the many things that this select committee needs to do, and because the Democrats are in power, that means this committee, this select committee, has the full weight and authority of the House of Representatives to issue subpoenas, compel testimony. We'll see if they compel testimony of other sitting members of Congress, Republicans, obviously, those who participated in the events on January 6th with respect to the speeches. Do you think they will? Were, I don't know. Uh, I, I don't know. I mean, I think I, like, I'm, I'm bipartisan, nonpartisan, really. Uh, I don't care about either of the sides. And I'm, I'm going to tell you some things just to demonstrate why, quite frankly. But uh, I want them to only accomplish as much as they can with the mission they can. But at the same time, I've been in D.C. now for 30 years. Uh, you know, you'd have to be naive not to recognize that there is a slippery slope if the Democrats subpoena Republican congressmen or women to appear before them. Uh, because at some point in time, and it will happen, don't know when, the Republicans will be in power in the House again. And do the Democrats want to be pulled before any investigative committees uh, in, in their life or tenure? Don't know. I mean, that's a real risk they're going to have to consider. It's a political risk. From a substantive standpoint, do I want to hear Congressman Brooks testify? Oh, yes. You know, do I want to hear, um, I'm trying to think who, uh, Jim Jordan? Jim testify? Jordan. I was going to say. Yeah, what conversations did they have with President Trump? Although there could be executive privilege raised by the former president. Uh, but what was going on in their communications? Some of there were some Republican members of Congress who had communications with the rioters, insurrectionists, I, I believe even that day, but certainly in the days leading up to that incident, to the insurrection, to the attempted coup and civil, uh, you know, civil uprising. Uh, what was said? 
You know, what's in those messages? What's in those text messages? What's in those uh, emails? Who paid for the buses that brought these people? Uh, what coordination occurred between the Proud Boys uh, and a bunch of these other groups and sitting members of Congress or political leaders uh, in the state capitals uh, as well? So yeah, I'd like to see all of that. Will, will we see it? We'll see. Who knows? But ironically, while we were preparing our Capitol Police officers for testifying, we learned that the committee hired as its staff director, a man named David Buckley. David Buckley served last in government as the Central Intelligence Agency's Inspector General. My colleague, friend, client, Andrew Bakai, the lead counsel for the whistleblower in the intelligence community whose complaint led to the first impeachment of President Trump. Right. All right. I was the senior lawyer by way of age and experience, but Andrew was the lead lawyer and he was in on the case from the very beginning. I came in five weeks later. All right. And you and I have talked about this topic yeah. and the history of how that came about. Andrew was a whistleblower himself at the CIA. He was in the CIA IG's office back in 2014. And David Buckley, the IG at the time, unlawfully retaliated against Andrew. And I'm not just making and that And now up. he's, I, I understand that, but now he's back in. He's, he's the staff director of this committee, a man who was found, not by my allegation, who was found by the Department of Homeland Security's Office of Inspector General, a federal agency, independent oversight office that investigated the case for four and a half or so years, substantiated that David Buckley and four senior, other senior CIA officials unlawfully retaliated against Andrew. Andrew was working with me on the case to help the police officers testify. And here they hire a staff director who has unlawfully retaliated against him. And have you approached them about that? Have you said anything? Oh, you know, now, of course, the story uh, was first broke. Someone actually broke it on Twitter at first. And then Yahoo wrote a story about it. The New York Times most recently wrote a story. Politico wrote a story. Uh, the Project on Government Oversight, POGO, a top watchdog organization here in town, has called for Buckley's removal. Whistleblower aid, which I work with and helped found in 2017, and we provide pro bono representation to whistleblowers, has called for Buckley's removal. We talked to the committee before the story became known and warned them, cautioned them as to what they had done and what they are doing. I, I don't think they frankly understood the scope and magnitude of what they had done. And I'm His saying- His title again is- He's the staff director. <laughs> you know, he's the top staffer on it. Uh, and uh, they have, unfortunately, and to my disappointment. So everyone who's uh, listening, if you find this reprehensible, send it to your congressman and let them know. And the name is it's the staff director. And tell me his name again. David Buckley. And just in case you didn't understand that, that's David with a D, Buckley. And you want his removal because yeah, he I retaliated against whistleblowers. And now he's the staff director 
overseeing the insurrection the uh, co uh, committee. That's very telling. Well, what is so, so disappointing, here we have this select committee created by Speaker Pelosi, the top Democrat, right? Third in line to be the president of the United States. On the committee, we have Adam Schiff, the chairman of the House Select Committee on Intelligence, right? Two key Democratic congressional reps who were intimately involved, probably the two most intimately involved with the impeachment of President Trump on the first time. Right. Second, of course, too. But on the first time, what allowed them to impeach President Trump? My and Andrew Bakai's client, who handled whistleblowing the lawful way, the proper way, so that they could, not for the purpose of what they did, because we don't care that impeachment resulted. That wasn't the objective. Right. But by keeping David Buckley a proven retaliator against whistleblowers as their staff director, knowing what he did, all that shows to me is why I hate Washington, D.C. from a political partisanship matter, because it shows absolutely there's zero difference between what President Trump was saying when we were representing the, the IC whistleblower and he was saying, the person's not a whistleblower, person's not a whistleblower, they didn't blow the whistle on anything, it's a perfect phone call, they violated the law, they should be prosecuted. That's exactly the same sentiments that now the Democrats are saying with respect to protecting David Buckley, because in their first official statement, when we came forward with this and and identified the hypocrisy, they, in a written statement, said uh, they defended Buckley and said that what Andrew did was, I'm air quoting, or for people who can see this, I'm quoting, air quotes, air quotes claimed whistleblowing, claimed whistleblowing. They called into question Andrew, who wrote the CIA rules on whistleblowing that still exist, and, and help the Democrats impeach Trump. Yeah, that they challenged that he wasn't a real whistleblower. So Pelosi and Schiff meet Trump. What's the difference? Show me the difference, people. I want to believe there's a difference. Show it to me. Remove Buckley. Do you think they will? I don't know. I don't know. But to top it off, they announced... Uh, uh, the first, wow, like on August seventh, uh, something like that, they announced that their latest senior staffer is a man named Joseph Mahar. And Joseph Mahar was most recently like the principal deputy general counsel at the Department of Homeland Security. He's on detail apparently. Joseph Mahar is also someone that we filed a whistleblower complaint against. Earlier this year, in the weeks after January 6th, on behalf of Brian Murphy, who was very much in the news last year because he is the most senior whistleblower at the acting undersecretary level that we have seen in decades, decades. And he filed a number of whistleblower complaints against 
Acting DHS Secretary Chad Wolf, Acting Deputy Secretary Ken Cuccinelli, Ken Cuccinelli and other senior officials at Department of Homeland Security. And they've hired this guy, another person who might have, I say might have, because this right now is just an allegation. It is right. being investigated by DHS IG, the same office that determined Buckley was a, uh, uh, an unlawful retaliator, but it is still under investigation. All right, that, that's bad enough. It gets worse. It gets worse. Oh, good. <laughs> right, exactly, right? Because we want, we want this committee to succeed. Absolutely, 100%. Yes, absolutely, because there was an insurrection. It was seditious behavior. It threatened the United States. We hear all the time how it was a direct threat. But if you're hiring people like this, I don't know how you're going to do any good. So how does it get worse? Tell me it that. It gets worse because bad enough, the credibility is already on the line. Joseph Mahar not only might have retaliated unlawfully against my client, push that aside. My client was the acting undersecretary of intelligence and analysis at Department of Homeland Security. That is the intel component of DHS, one of the 17 intel agencies, offices that exist within the intelligence community. It was their job to monitor the very people who showed up on January 6th and committed this insurrection. Brian Murphy, as the acting undersecretary, he took that, he was the principal deputy, and then the, the, the undersecretary retired. He took over in May of 2020. In July of 2020, Secretary, acting Secretary Wolf removed Murphy under the pretext of, if you might remember, whether or not DHS was spying on journalists. Right. It was not true. It was, and that's why nobody's heard about it since. It was totally untrue. What they were doing was monitoring public social media and seeing that the adversaries, particularly Russia, were using American journalists reporting for their purposes. So yeah, they're, they're reading what you and I read all the time. You know, just look on Twitter. Well, you know, look in the news and if you kept track of it, but they're not monitoring the U.S. journalists to see what they're up to. Well, they unless monitoring is reading what we put out there in public right. for everybody to read. That I mean, so, I guess that's in a very far-fetched way that's monitoring. Exactly. It, and it was totally exaggerated and distorted. People misunderstood. Uh, but Wolf used that as a pretext to remove Murphy. Why did he really want Murphy removed? Because Murphy and INA, Intelligence and Analysis at DHS, were monitoring domestic extremists, the Proud Boys, and white now, nationalists. And now this guy is also involved in the insurrection investigation. This guy took over from Murphy at, on like August 1st, give or take a day, and what did he do as one of his initial decisions on the instruction, I am told, by Chad Wolf and Ken Cuccinelli? To stop monitoring the extremists, to focus on foreign influence inside the United States. And that is why during the insurrection, we weren't aware of the activities? That is absolutely one of the reasons why. Now, 
Uh, just like with 9-11, as we come upon the 20th anniversary, and for those who are old enough to remember, you know, the famous memo at the NSC that Al-Qaeda is going to fly airplanes into the World Trade Center, uh, that came out about five weeks or so, six weeks before 9-11. Um, pretty prescient, pretty scary, pretty uncomfortable once that was realized. You know, so does having warnings mean you're going to stop the event? No, not necessarily. And I would never say, and I don't think anyone I know who's familiar with this issue would say that had DHS continued to do what Brian Murphy wanted it to do, that that would have stopped January 6th. But I sure as hell can tell you that the fact that this guy who's now detailed over to the committee, the fact that he stopped DHS from reporting on domestic extremists who then showed up on January 6th, uh, that that certainly contributed to January 6th happening, certainly didn't prevent it. Well, so, it's also a conflict of interest. And in how can we trust that what he's going to do now is in the best interest of the American people? I think that's where we're at with him right now. I think right? that's a pretty damn legitimate question. How yeah. do you trust someone who himself should be under investigation by this committee to determine that what he did or didn't do constituted a failure, dereliction of duty, or just moral outrage in allowing January 6th to happen, yet he's on the inside on the staff? Yeah, that's, well, and... and Let's uh, let's talk a little bit about it, that intel. You also happen to know, um, and this person also agrees with you about intel, or at least he says that there needs to be better intel gathered in the future and that um, it needs to be uh, better monitored. And that's the new Capitol Police Chief, um, Tom Manger. Now, you have a history. I have a history with Tom. I've known him for many years. You had a history with him in Montgomery County. Do you feel like he's the right person for the job? You know, I, I, I hope so. I think so. Uh, I only had, I had an interesting experience with him back in. And I'm going to ask you to tell about that experience right now. <laughs> a decade plus ago. Uh, I, I certainly, I'll say this, I've been impressed with him so far. And I actually represent uh, the Intel chief at the Capitol Police. Now this individual, this is not public. It's public that I've represented the person. Uh, or one of the Intel chiefs actually, uh, but they were new in the job when January 6th happened. Right. Um, the Capitol Police was revamping their intelligence arm. Uh, so they, you know, they got caught because flat-footed because there wasn't anything for them to do yet. They were still literally new on the job. Uh, but I participated in the Inspector General investigations to find out what the Capitol Police knew and not, uh, or didn't know. And uh, what I've been impressed with um, Tom so far with the chief is uh, how open he has been uh, about what he needs to do with this department, how supportive he has been publicly, at least, of the officers who have test my clients who testified, my two clients. He's been uh, publicly very supportive of the test. Very supportive. Yeah. Uh, and and, I, and I'm, I'm hopeful that he's going to do the right thing. Uh, you know, I have heard negative things about him from former and current, you know, Montgomery County police uh, officers, but they all seem to be just that he was a hard boss and he had, you know, very high level expectations of them, which doesn't necessarily mean that the criticism is valid. It actually may be justified, not just not the criticism, just that the actions that he took to be criticized by somebody 
might have been justified if he was holding officers up to a high level standard that you and I as the public want Want. to see. And, you know, my interactions with him, I I got uh, ticketed, I got pulled over and ticketed at a police stop at a speed trap uh, over by Montgomery Mall uh, for those who are uh, listening locally. And I flashed my high beams uh, at the cars coming at me because Montgomery County was playing uh, games and tricks that day. And they had a speed trap on both sides of the road. Yes. And so. Not unheard of. Not unheard of. So I saw the other side uh, and I started flashing my brights to warn the drivers to slow down. To warn the drivers to slow down. It's an exercise of my First Amendment, you know, that constitutional right. Uh, and I got ticketed for uh, for fla- a violation of some flashing light ordinance or something, which it was a young cop who gave me the ticket. Uh, and there was an older cop with him. And I was pretty sure I knew exactly what was going on at the time. Uh, and I learned, I, I, you know, look, I was an EMT. I was a firefighter. I represent a lot of law enforcement. I don't argue with cops giving me tickets. Right. <laughs> you just take them and argue them in court. Oh yeah, I believe I will be far more powerful afterwards than yes. in that moment. It's so always good I, to just be polite. Don't yeah. get arrested. Don't get handcuffed. Don't get shot. Take the ticket and go on your way. Yeah, I mean, at one point he said, like, "Well, I could have given you a ticket for obstructing justice." I'm like, um, "Okay, officer, no, I don't think so." But <laughs> I'm not going to argue with anybody. <laughs> I'll take the ticket. Thank you. He's like, "Yeah, there's no points on your license. It's just a fine." And I'm looking at it. And I remember just sitting there in the car. I was on my way to a Nats game, Nationals, watching the Nationals game. I'm sitting there in the car going, this is not right. And I, and I called a buddy of mine who was a lawyer at the ACLU, and I explained what literally just happened five minutes earlier. And I'm like, I'm going to challenge this. Are you in? And they're like, oh, yeah, hell yeah. I, I, didn't, I didn't need them at the end of the day because I took care of it uh, on my own. But uh, I leaked the existence of the ticket and my uh, impending trial to uh, the bunch of the media and a number of mains of uh, you know major networks did stories on it and then the washington posted a a front page metro section story and i wrote a four i'm a lawyer i wrote a four page legal letter to to the chief uh, you know with with case law going back to the 1890s <laughs> about people flashing their headlights and and, and yeah actually at that point i don't think they even had a web, they would yell at drivers to be careful, there's a police officer up ahead because they had no right. roofs on, on their cars, right? Uh, and and the chief, I'll never forget, the chief on a Friday night at 10 o'clock at night was texting with me and, and he basically said something to the effect of, Mark, please, I apologize. It's not gonna happen again. Can you please call off the media dog? <laughs> Because I not only wasn't in the media, I got the House of Delegates for Maryland, the chief lawyer to send a letter to Montgomery County demanding to know why I got ticketed and under what law did I get ticketed. I had the Attorney General of Maryland at the time send a letter (laughs) to him demanding to know why I was ticketed, what law was I ticketed under, Uh, and I think two or three senators as well in Maryland. I mean, I wasn't playing games and um, I appreciated how he handled it. He handled it professionally and 
unlike what I'm seeing with the committee now, which is defending and digging deeper, he, he went, you know, we were wrong. We admit it. We were wrong. And we're sorry. And I've made sure it's not going to happen again. And you know what? That's all I wanted. I didn't need anything else. Right. That, that was it. I like what, what uh, the part that you left out of this version of it was when he said, uh, look, we don't train our officers, nor do we want them to do this. And that that's telling. If you're going to train your officers up right, gives me hope that perhaps he's the right guy. <laughs> gives me a, a additional hope he's the right guy in, in the Capitol because yeah. that's what they need. Someone who's going to do the job. And, you know, I had him on this show last week. And um, one of the things that he said is, you know, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm not, I'm apolitical. I'm here to do the job, uphold the constitution, not what you think the constitution is, but the actual constitution. So the officers are going to be trained and they're going to be doing what they got to do. And that was, uh, that was telling. And so what you tell me is also reassuring. It was absolutely. And in my case, it wasn't a department policy. There was no law. I didn't violate any law. It was two officers who decided to do this on their own. I, I did a, I know, I, as you said, I do a lot of Freedom of Information Act work, including for you. Uh, and, you know, USA Thank Today, God. CBC, Politico, Wall Street Journal, Daily Beast, Yahoo. I represent all of these folks. Um, and I use the Montgomery County Freedom of Information Law. And I asked for, give me a record, give me the number of tickets under this statute that was used against me uh, for the last 20 years. How far back do you go? 20 years. And every year it was either zero or every so often it was one. And wow. then the first four months of the year I got pulled over, it was 15. And, and I emailed back the person who gave me the data or on the phone, I forget which it was. And I said, look, I know I, you don't need to tell me this, but I'd like to ask how many officers were involved in those tickets? The same two. Ah. That, that's what it was. So these guys were doing something they shouldn't, you know, not maliciously. I, I understood the intent, but it was wrong. Yeah. yeah. And, and <laughs> usually the, you know, the, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. So they say, right. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so they were paving it pretty deep. <laughs> we're going to take a short break. And when we come back, we got to go over. I, I, I mean, I, I want to talk DB Cooper if you're into it. Oh yes. All right. Stick around. We'll be right back. Hey there, JATQ listeners. We deeply appreciate your listenership and the audience we've been able to cultivate while producing this podcast. Thanks to all of your support, we've been able to ramp things up and create even more content for you to enjoy. Through our Patreon page, there are lots of new and exciting things to check out. Due to the way Patreon is set up, it's entirely up to you, the listener, to decide what that content is worth. The podcast episodes will always be free. But if you want to gain access to our weekly newsletter, ad-free episodes, exclusive merch, and much, much more, you'll want to head over to patreon.com slash J-A-T-Q podcast. That's patreon.com slash J-A-T-Q podcast. Thanks. Have a great day. Hi, we are back, and it is Just Ask the Question, and I am your host, Brian Karam, and with us is Attorney Mark Zaden. Mark, I guess I'll just ask you the question. 
what the hell's with DB? No, <laughs> what's up with DB Cooper? That's one of the, you know, that guy. And, you know, there are people in case anyone doesn't know by this point, he's the guy who uh, hijacked an airplane and jumped out of it at high speed over the Rockies with a lot of money. And he was him and the money were never seen again. A lot of people thought that he died. And, but you don't believe that. And uh, you think you, you, you say you found him. Yeah, and there's so, there's a new story breaking this week about it. So fill it in, yep. fill us in. So this was 50 years ago this year in November. Dun dun dun. And now most people who are probably listening to this podcast had weren't no alive. Idea. <laughs> well, weren't alive and probably had no idea who DB Cooper was until recently because they watched Loki on Disney Plus. Yes, Loki was DB Cooper. <laughs> it turns out Loki was D.B. Cooper because he lost a bet with Thor. <laughs> oh, that's what your investigation uncovered. <laughs> that's what we discovered. And Disney and Marvel uh, made it true for us. So uh, I was part of a cold case team of experts. I was the lawyer on the team uh, that was formed back in around 2013 or so. And as a result of our work, we identified uh, a guy uh, who we believe, his name is uh, Rackstraw. Uh, I'm just blanking on his first name, which is kind of pathetic. because I should know by, by heart. Yeah. Well, I know, ironically, the other thing people don't realize uh, is that uh, D.B. Cooper, Robert Rackstraw, sorry, Robert, he's dead now. Uh, so, but uh, wherever you are, sorry about that, forgot your name. Uh, D.B. Cooper actually was a, an error that some journalists made in his reporting because the name the guy used in hijacking the plane was Dan Cooper. Yeah, that's right. He did say Dan Cooper. And, and so D.B. Cooper just, that was the name on the ticket, the pseudonym. Uh, but somebody wrote D.B. Cooper and it just stuck. So we identified Robert Rackstraw, who was a uh, Vietnam vet, uh, paratrooper, special, all sorts of special forces and spy stuff, uh, CIA affiliation, uh, really nasty guy, actually, it, it, nasty in a kind of good way, you know, back in the war, actually got kicked out of the army because it turned out he lied about his education and everything, uh, went on to get prosecuted for murdering his stepfather in the late 70s after he had fled to Iran, this is pre-Khomeini, and he was enticed back and got arrested and prosecuted, although he was acquitted of that murder. Uh, although I got to tell you, and he can't sue me now because he's dead. Um, it, it, it's the, from the evidence that I saw, it was sort of like an O.J. Simpson situation. Okay, yeah, he was acquitted, but uh, I'm pretty sure he did it. Wow. Uh, but the jury system, you know, this is how it works. But uh, he fits the pattern. And he was, of course, alive when we identified him. And he never sued me. He never sued our cold case team. One of the guys wrote a book, uh, Tom Colbert. You can buy it on Amazon, a really cool book um, about the case and what evidence we found. Uh, and uh, Rackstraw said at one point that I had actually murdered him. Uh, but like in uh, Monty Python's The Holy Grail, he got better. I got better. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it, he he wrote turned me in into a, a newt. <laughs> he wrote this in a court filing that I murdered him. Uh, but that they resuscitated him on the operating table. And he I was like, okay, that, that's, that's interesting. Uh, but he died a couple of years ago. Of what? Uh, um, 
I mean, nothing suspicious as far as I know, just natural causes. He was, I mean, he wasn't that old. He was in his like mid seventies uh, or so. Uh, obviously there's a ton of theories about who DB Cooper is. Right. Uh, I, I, I do think this is one of the strongest ones. I'm not going to say absolutely. It's not, you know, or that was him, but I do think it was one of the strongest, if not the strongest one I saw because everything fit with this guy, everything. What was his motive? Uh, his motive seems to have been that he was pissed off at the army for kicking him out. And he was basically, basically going to show him. He was going to show him what he can do and get away with it. And he did. And whatever happened to the money? So $200,000 was paid to him, which would be about $1.3 million today. Uh, it was given to him. So the, the passengers didn't even know they were hijacked. Uh, they thought there was a, uh, a problem with the mechanics of the plane. The plane lands. The flight crew, of course, knew they were hijacked. The right. plane lands. The fl everybody gets off uh, of the passengers. They give Dan Cooper, uh, a.k.a. Robert Rackstraw, uh, parachutes and the $200,000 in cash, marked, of course. Uh, and then the flight crew comes back on and he says, take off. And he tells them where to go and that we're going to go to Mexico. And on the way, as you mentioned, they drop to 10,000 feet. He puts the tail. He, he arranges them to put the tail by the steps, whatever one calls it, at the back of the plane down. I don't know if planes do that anymore. I don't think so. No. Uh, but military planes obviously do. But, you know, I literally, if you right. saw, anybody, saw Air Force One with Harrison right. Ford at the end of the movie, right, the ramp that goes down. Yeah. Or other, I think it was a stairwell that like he went down. And he got yeah, the old newspapers. I mean, old newspapers, old, old uh, planes had the uh, the rear steps out of the uh, rear of the yeah. fuselage and you could and open those up. And he, he jumps. jumps. He's never found. Okay. 200,000. No body found. No money found. No parachutes found. Anything like that. Nine years later, uh, on the banks of the river in Oregon, an eight-year-old boy finds something like $6,500 under the sand and it's and, in a state of decomposition so uh, well uh, some of it's in decomposition uh yes but it's it still has the rubber bands around it which uh i don't know about you but if you've ever found old rubber bands in your drawer that have been there for years uh, <laughs> as soon as you touch them they snap and break well they get gummy and fall apart right, right? Quickly. yes and to think that this money with the rubber bands was somehow under the sand for nine years is absurd, uh, absolutely absurd. And even add to that, that it turns out that the river had been dredged a number of years earlier to deepen it for shipping, which means all the sand that was now there in 1980 was not what was there in 1971. Yeah. And what, my, what the, the lead of the cold case team had discovered what actually led to the creation of the cold case team was a story he had been told by someone that in the days before this money was found, this guy was at a party. And at the party, someone told him like three days before the money was found, you see that couple over there in the corner, they're going to find the DB Cooper money. Huh. And why boom. would they do that? Who would do it? And why? I mean, so the guy who said that was a, a criminal colleague of Robert Rackstraw. They were drug, they were dealing, I think they were dealing drugs, but they were definitely gun running uh, together. 
Uh, and it, some good people. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. A whole good crowd. Uh, yeah. And the thought or theory is that they they did it to throw the federal authorities off the track to try and make it look like actually D.B. Cooper had died, you know, buried the money. And why wouldn't he have come back for it? But, right. um, you know, if people are lucky and I and I unfortunately lost out on this, uh, but some of the money will come up for auction uh, every so often. Uh, Heritage Auctions in Texas, which is a client of mine, uh, a few years ago, auctioned a whole bunch of it off. And I just- Of the, of the found that. money, right? Of the found money. Yeah, no, nothing more than that has been found. And all right, so if nothing has ever been found, what happened to it? If, if this guy, Robert Ruckshaw was, That's how did true. he benefit? So our theory is that uh, he took the money uh, to Iran with him when he went there and you know, uh, he used it. Uh, I mean, look, this is this was like 1970. Oh, gosh, 76, 77. You know, you can easily bring money back and forth out of the country. Nobody who's checking. Nobody's checking anything right in right. your bags or anything like that. They're, they're, I don't even know not when you're leaving. No, certainly not when you're leaving. And Iran wouldn't have cared at that point in time. So there was well, some they would just want a little of it. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and there was some theory that it cre he uh, converted it to gold Krugerrands was somebody had said that, uh, you know, some of that's obviously going to be speculation always as to what what happened to the rest of it. But the beauty of the case is that in 2016, the FBI administrated in part because of us um, administratively closed its case, which meant it, they said the unless someone brings us a body the money or the parachute, we're done. You know, we're not going to spend any more resources. We got to, and I don't, I don't have a problem with this. You know, they, they got to deter terror, prosecute terrorists. They got to go after, uh, yeah. they got to go after insurrectionists. So right? yeah, that'd be nice if they did. So, so what happened to the, all right. So the parachute, all right. So the money you say was laundered through Iran. There was no body because he didn't die. He died later. Yeah. There's never been anybody accuse him of it or link him to it though. Uh, other than us, uh, other well, than actually, no, oh, no, no, not true. The FBI had him as a suspect. Oh, he was suspected really? to be uh, DB Cooper, and that was why they lured him back in part uh, from uh, Iran. The FBI oh. met him at the airport to arrest him and interrogate him about it uh, because he fit the profile. Now, what we were told is that he gave the FBI an alibi that the FBI couldn't break. So they moved on. To Which was? I don't remember that, that he was somewhere else, that he was in a different location. But we sued. I'm still handling after five years a FOIA lawsuit against the FBI for the entire D.B. Cooper investigative file of like 80,000 pages, most of which is garbage, you know, ridiculous theories, right. and, uh, you know, worthless stuff. But um, what we were able to find out as part of our investigation is, yeah, Robert Rackstraw did have an alibi for the hijacking, but not just one. He had like four, <laughs> but like four different ones. Like I was in Seattle. I was in Portland. I was in Mexico. I was know, with your mama. <laughs> I was with your mom. You know, so he only told one to the FBI and whoever backed it was enough for the FBI to, you know, back go off. back off. 
but he told multiple other people where he was on that day and they were all different. Which sort of, you know, undermines the credibility of any one of those <laughs> yeah, Just a wee bit. So, and why is it in the news again today, this week? So uh, this week, uh, like on August 8th or so, the last few days, some, some professor, I think, uh, was on Facebook Live for like two straight days digging for the money on the riverbank where the funds, the 6,500 or whatever number it was, was found in 1980. Uh, I haven't seen any stories, so I'm guessing he didn't find anything. Kind of like Al Capone's vaults. <laughs> with, yeah, oh, yeah, with uh, Geraldo Rivera. I'll never yeah. forget that, yeah. uh, that episode. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, when we come back, I want to talk a little bit more about um, uh, some FOIA stuff and some records that are be, uh, supposed to come out this year with the JFK uh, investigation. So stick around and we'll be right back. Hey, Just Ask the Question podcast listeners. If you've got a second, head on over to Twitter and follow our official page, J-A-T-Q podcast. That's J-A-T-Q podcast. Again, that's at J-A-T-Q podcast. Hi, we're back. It's Just Ask the Question. And, and with me is attorney... Mark uh, Zaid and Mark, well, first of all, before we get to the part about JFK, as someone who tried to threaten your your life is now behind bars. D.B. Cooper never made it there, but but this guy did. Right. right. Uh, all, it, all it took was upsetting the FBI agents. So I was <laughs> yeah. representing the uh, IC whistleblower in the first Trump impeachment. Uh, I took the brunt uh, out of the legal team only be, uh, for one, I'm, I'm just more experienced, older. I've been out there more, so I had more history. But I also, because I, I tweeted out in 2017, hashtag coup uh, in, res in relation to Trump firing the acting attorney general, Sally Yates, for refusing to obey his orders uh, regarding the Muslim travel ban. Mm. And uh, I, Jake Tapper tweeted a story out of CNN. I retweeted Jake Tapper and I said something like hashtag, I, I don't remember exactly, anyone can look on Twitter. Uh, if they go to any alt-right website, they'll find my tweet uh, because they made a huge issue that I was trying to uh, undertake a coup against the president of the United States simply because I typed the four-letter word with a hashtag coup. I mean, that was all I ever did. I never, I never did anything more than that. Because I was talking about their senior, coup. I was talking about senior US government officials who are in power, in office, standing yes. up to the leader of the United States uh, and saying no. As well as I, I typed in uh, impeachment. Well, I said impeachment will follow. That's how smart I am in 2017. <laughs> I predict that Trump would be impeached, not once, but, but twice. twice. <laughs> so, uh, but, they, but President Trump himself made an issue of this tweet because. Yes, that I remember. Some Republican operatives found it, you know, when they scoured through 18,000 of my tweets. And that was the best they could come up with. Uh, and he said I was he called me a scumbag, uh, which is a badge of honor. And he said I should be sued for treason, which, of course, does not exist. Uh, I don't yeah. know what the hell that is. 
Uh, but in any event, um, it's it's a civil litigation these days. Right. <laughs> Treason uh, will just sue you and take your money. You know, Rush Limbaugh uh, was calling me out. Mark Levin was calling me out. Laura Ingram, uh, Sean Hannity, of course, they were really the instigators because every time they said something negative about me, I got, you know, dozens, if not hundreds of harassing phone calls, emails, letters, several of which crossed the line into threatening my life. Yeah. And I reported those to the FBI and, you know, to the FBI's credit, because I sue them all the time. Um, <laughs> they took it really seriously. Uh, and, and I really, really appreciate all the FBI did. Uh, they went out and interviewed several of these people. And as I, I believe I've been quoted, you know, nothing, for most of them, nothing ever happened because they peed in their pants, no doubt, when they had the FBI knocking at their door. That would probably uh, do it for most people. And, uh, and that was it, right? And they never sent me anything again. This one guy in Michigan, when the FBI came to his house, uh, he, and, they, and he had them come in, he was, as was described to me by an FBI agent, Mark, this guy has anger management issues. <laughs> uh, and uh -oh. he interrupted at them. Um, one of the agents, according to the affidavit that they filed in court, accidentally bumped against him, just like trying to get to sit down. Uh, and he, the guy, flipped over his kitchen table and started screaming at the agents uh, that the one agent who didn't hit him should arrest the other agent who had bumped into him. And he got arrested uh, as, or, and then charged or later charged for threatening my life. But, you know, frankly, if he had acted politely and cowardly, uh, cowering to the FBI agents when they visited him, he never would have been arrested. Uh, but he did it to himself. And uh, earlier this year, not long ago, back in June, uh, he, he had pled guilty in December of last year, and in June he was sentenced, and the, the judge sent a message uh, and gave him a year and a day in jail. Wow. So he's convicted of a felony. Now, uh, and now I'm going to completely shift gears on you <laughs> and talk about JFK. The rest of the stuff, all the records are supposed to be released this year, and you have something to do with that. Tell me about that. So I have worked on the JFK assassination case since I was a little kid. And actually, this law practice that I have dealing with national security and the intelligence community predominantly uh, in law enforcement, federal level, very much comes out of the work that I started on the JFK assassination back in the 80s and early 90s. Uh, it, it just encouraged my interest in the intelligence community. You know, was Lee Harvey Oswald a false defector? Was he a KGB spy? Did he work for the CIA? Did he work for naval intelligence? Those are all good questions. What are the answers? Uh, no, no, and no. <laughs> what are the answers to all of those? Uh, Lee Ariadwells is a fascinating guy. Uh, I don't think people realize he was only 24 years old when he right. was president candidate, uh, allegedly because he wasn't tried, but I'm pretty confident he did it. Uh, and in fact, I would encourage people, if you Google uh, Oswald and look up uh, television and radio broadcasts, there are a few television interviews of him and radio interviews of him in New Orleans in uh, 1963, in like the spring of 63. 
Uh, he lived in the Soviet Union for two and a half years. <laughs> he was a huge supporter of Castro. And for a 24-year-old with you know, only a high school education, he was pretty fascinating to listen to, uh, especially then going on to kill the president. But so uh, I have spent many, I, I long ago- So what was his motive? Uh, you know, th so that's a good question. Everybody, all these investigative bodies always want to have motives. And the Warren Commission was really hard pressed to try and find a motive for him right. because uh, they frankly couldn't uh, because uh, all they knew about him and Kennedy was favorable. Marina, his widow, testified that he liked JFK and they couldn't come up with anything else that that showed he didn't. Uh, but it looks like he tried to kill General Walker. Uh, who was this uh, staunch anti-communist? And I mean, uh, Oswald was a Marxist. And, you know, he was a true believer, real true believer. And, um, and so why did Jack Ruby with mob connections kill Lee Harvey Oswald? Mob connections and as did anybody who ran a strip club in Dallas in 1963. <laughs> uh, he also had FBI connections. because yes, he, he was did. An informant for the FBI yeah. in 1959. Uh, you know, look, uh, as far as I'm concerned, uh, and I, this isn't to say that there aren't legitimate questions on all of the aspects of the Kennedy assassination, tons of legitimate questions. But if we're talking beyond a reasonable doubt, which is not 100%, it's like 90 to 95%, I'm, I'm uh, satisfied beyond a reasonable doubt that Oswald did it and Jack Ruby did it on his own, literally as a Jew, I'm a Jew, uh, Jack, Jacob Rubenstein was his name. Uh, to show uh, Oswald, to show the world that that Jews cared and uh, that 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 Jews were going to be tough and and take this guy out. Because in the days before Kennedy showed up, there was an ad in the Dallas newspaper by a guy named Bernard Weissman, uh, who I think I think was a real name. I'm blanking at the second, but it wasn't. He, I don't think he was Jewish. But that's a Jewish. That's a very Jewish name. And Ruby thought that that was intentional, that, that that was designed to make Jews look bad. And he wow. saw, there's all evidence that he saw that ad in the Dallas Morning News or Star Evening Star or whatever the newspaper was at the time, Dallas Herald at the time. Um, so I have, I, I have moved away from proving what happened on November 22nd, 1963. Uh, I, I leave that to others. It is 50 uh, eight years ago in November, and you know what? It ain't going to be solved to everybody's satisfaction. No, uh, I don't think I, it ever will. I've moved on, but what I do want to do, and I continue to do, is help everybody decide what they think happened based on original documents. So I have been working with the U.S. government uh, to help, and, and, well, with or against, whichever way you want to look at it, to force the disclosure uh, of the classified documents, withheld documents about the Kennedy assassination. So I helped work on a law called the JFK Records Collection Act of 1992. Uh, and that law by Congress mandated that every record, unless it met very, very narrow exceptions for like national security or you know, would kill an informant and things like that, had to be released by October 2017. Now, how long you, you go? Well, but well, March 2021, 2021. Was four years ago. Right? Yeah. So, um, 
They were all set to be mostly released. And Trump spoke out publicly that he wanted them released. Yes, uh, remember this. I'll give, you, I'll give you a nice side fact you probably don't know. You might remember the name Roger Stone. Who? <laughs> Roger who? <laughs> Roger Stone is a JFK conspiracy fanatic. He wrote a book. Yeah, that's the true. Administration about the fact that it was a conspiracy to murder the president. So, you know, Trump, as you know, more than most people, Trump reacts on whoever whispered in his ear last. Yes, that's so true. <laughs> and apparently uh, Pompeo, when he was the director of the CIA, went to the White House in what I'm told is still a secret, secret meeting, uh, not on the books, and told him, you can't release these records. So Trump postponed them. Some were still released by the archives. Right. Uh, and I helped with that. But uh, a large number, about like 13,000 are still withheld. And he postponed it for four years. So here we are four years later, uh, and everything is supposed to be released by October. So now it falls to President Biden to decide whether or not these records will be released. All of the agencies were to tell the archivist of the National Archives in April whether or not they want records to be withheld. And then the archivist is to decide by September in about six weeks uh, whether or not their reasoning is justified and supported. Excuse me. And then it goes to the president and President Biden has until October 26th to decide. That's awfully, there's some, well, there's some coincidence in that one Catholic president, the only second Catholic president to deal with the first Catholic president's administration. Well, what do you think will happen? Well, uh, I, there will be records that come out, um, and I think there'll probably be a further delay, in part because of COVID, understandable. Uh, but I think in part, and I'm hoping that the president will come down hard on the agencies and say, you better be serious about why you want this information withheld. I really want to have it justified. You know, this is not, not a willy-nilly, no, we don't- eight years it. later, for the love of God. Well, I, I tell you, most of the records- uh, from what I'm told by people who know what's in the records, most of the records actually do not deal with November 22nd, 1963. I helped create the definition of assassination record for the assassination records review board. They took input from the public and I helped craft it. And I, and I wrote a law review article about it before the board was even created. And they pretty much took what we gave them. And it's a very, very broad definition. So like I said, Oswald lived in the Soviet Union from 59 to 1962. Some so, of that's in there. Some of that's in there. Or, but, but forget Oswald, just anything to do with Soviet Union, right? In that time period. We tried to kill Kennedy, uh, Castro. We tried to kill Castro, the Kennedy administration. One of the theories is that Castro, uh, you know, retaliated and killed him instead. Do so you, anything I, from Cuba in 1960 is in there. That's uh, right. that's a be that'll be interesting. I don't know if you remember. Once you reminded me, the CIA tried to kill Castro. I remember the Saturday Night Live bit with uh, Chevy Chase saying, uh, "The CIA denied it. They said they haven't even developed the tiny flamethrowers they would need to sto- uh, stow away in his beard." <laughs> that's 
<laughs> now, some of it, some of it is justifiably withheld. Uh, well, I because, get that, but at the end of the day, um, most of it probably not. Yeah, but uh, yeah, there you go. That's where I was going with it. I mean, I oh. think the vast majority of it probably not, but it, I think if people think that that this these are the the really secret documents because they're still withheld and that they're going to shed light on what really happened, they're going to be disappointed. Yeah, I, I agree with you. One last final thought for the evening before we let you go. And Mark, it's been a lot of fun. I could do this all night, but let's go back to the January 6th commission. You represent some of the people on it. You are in, you have been involved in it. You've mentioned two of the problems with it at the end two of the problematic hires anyway, in that at the end of the day, what do you think is going to happen? What do you think will come out of that? I mean, look, I do think we are going to learn new facts about that day. Now, unlike with, well, not even unlike, you know, 20 years ago, 9-11, the 9-11 commission had to deal with problems that uh, this select committee won't have to deal with, mostly like from the intelligence standpoint, because right. obviously there were, there were CIA issues, uh, military intelligence, lots of things from overseas. The, the thing that's in the news right now that the families are very upset they want President Biden to release more information about Saudi Arabia and the connections because 15 of the 19 hijackers were Saudis uh, and there's documents still withheld about whether the Saudi princes were involved, Saudi money, things like that, right? And they want that to be released. So, but at the same time, what is similar, 9-11 Commission did have to deal with the fact that there were people being prosecuted and sadly still are 20 years later, which is more uh, a pathetic commentary about our justice system than not. Because uh, well, I'll doubt go back here to Democrats and Republicans on that. Politics have muddied out those waters too. Very much so. Politics muddied it, um, even though it was an independent commission. Yeah. And did a lot of great things. Uh, but, you know, this committee, the January 6th committee, we've got hundreds of people being prosecuted. And now the reality is those guys, for the most part, are all foot soldiers and are probably, frankly, irrelevant to yes. the consideration. Who's relevant are some of the people who my guys testified about, the, the white militia folks, the people who seemed organized, the people who were wearing full military gear and were prepared. You know, a lot of these people, I don't have- How about the guy who got rid of pipe, they've never found the guy who distributed the pipe, the pipe bombs. They've never yeah. found out who he is, how he Not got yet. there. How did the buses, how did the, how did the, all the um, communications work before 9-11? Yeah. These now are the things that, that Tom Man Major wants to know. These yes. are things that we need to know. Need and to it's know. scary because at the end of the day, how far up does it go? Absolutely. And those are the questions that hopefully they will answer. And I think we'll get answers to a bunch of those, like, who paid for what, uh, more information about the communications that was on social media, the role that social media played yeah. uh, in leading up to the insurrection. The question, and we can end on where we started, the question will be how strong is the political will of these members? I'll say Democrat and Republican alike, but reality, Democrats, how strong is their will to go after fellow sitting members of Congress in the opposite party and the former leadership of the opposite party, meaning Donald Trump 
Rudy Giuliani, as far as subpoenaing him, and other people who hey. spoke at the rally. Re and, I, you know, we'll see. Yeah. Giuliani sat there and said, trial by combat. I heard it. I heard it myself. I watched them walk up that hill. I saw them threaten reporters. I saw them beating up and storming the Bastille, so to speak. And it was not pretty. And I want everyone from top to bottom, big and small, to be prosecuted for their for their part in that insurrection. It was, I'll tell you, it was the saddest day of my adult life covering politics to see what happened that day. And I, I, I'll end on that. On that, on that happy note, <laughs> Mark, it's been a pleasure. Will you come back and, and talk some more? I will come back anytime. All right. Anytime. Yeah, all righty, brother. And, and trivia every Monday night. <laughs> I'm, there. Yeah. I'm there. I'm there. All right. The name of the show is Just Ask the Question. I am your host, Brian Karam. Thanks for joining us, and we'll catch you next time. Hey there, JATQ listeners. We deeply appreciate your listenership and the audience we've been able to cultivate while producing this podcast. Thanks to all of your support, we've been able to ramp things up and create even more content for you to enjoy. Through our Patreon page, there are lots of new and exciting things to check out. Due to the way Patreon is set up, it's entirely up to you, the listener, to decide what that content is worth. The podcast episodes will always be free. But if you want to gain access to our weekly newsletter, ad-free episodes, exclusive merch, and much, much more, you'll want to head over to patreon.com slash J-A-T-Q podcast. That's patreon.com slash J-A-T-Q podcast. Thanks. Have a great day.